1: Sex is like a bridge game. If you don't have a good partner, you'd better have a good hand. May West. Well, actually, I don't know if it's really Mae West, but that's who gets credit for that quote, which I think is so funny and makes some really interesting points. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, where good girls go for sexual empowerment. I'm your host, August McLaughlin. And before I introduce our incredibly special guest, I'm so excited. I have a question for you all. Are you celebrating Masturbation Month? You do know it is masturbation month right well here's a little bit of history for you that's not very sexy actually back in 1994 Surgeon General Joycelyn Elders who I personally think is a total kick-ass woman was fired for suggesting that self-stimulation masturbation be incorporated into sex ed how sad is that it would help so many people solve so many problems if we taught you know kids about their bodies right and pleasure so the month is dedicated to to her, and she has her own day, which climaxes, pun intended, on May 28th, which is National Masturbation Day in honor of her. So I hope you are uh, celebrating in whatever way you feel you know empowered and sexy and, and confident and healthy with. Before I introduce my wonderful guest, I have some insight from our resident expert, Dr. Megan Fleming, to share. If you listened last week on our show, Sexy Abundance, you know that Dr. Megan is going to be sharing expert tips and taking some listeners' questions for the next few months, which is such a gift. She's such a wonderful resource. Check out what she had to say in response to this question from Gail in Ohio, who loves her vibrator and wants to make sure she's, well, vibing it right.
0: August, I'm just wanting to say that I'm thrilled to be this segment of Ask Dr. Megan Uh, happy to answer and really welcoming all questions on sex and relationships. So the two we have this week, one is I had talked last week about uh, the question was saying that vibrators might shorten a woman's arousal. What did I mean? Uh, Because this listener loves using hers and wants to make sure she's using it right. This is Gail. And Gail, I would like to say that I think that to me, vibrators are tools in a toolbox and that I think for some women, because they have intense uh, stimulation that... Typically that a partner can't duplicate that they can bring you to orgasm very quickly. But sometimes when we reach orgasm quickly, we're not truly building our arousal, which is really slowing down and incorporating the entire body in feeling sexual pleasure and not just being focused so, uh, exclusively on the, the clitoris in particular to reach orgasm. So. I guess the two key takeaways I would say is, one, just allow yourself time for foreplay and fully engaging the whole body and not just focusing on clitoral stim um, to really build your arousal. And the other thing I would just say is that it is a tool in a toolbox. So if you're using it and loving it, fantastic. But just to be mindful that a partner can't duplicate that stimulation. Um, And so I think that if you find, in general, you're less orgasmic with a partner, it might make sense to take a break from your vibrator just to see and notice how your body ultimately will respond when it's no longer conditioned to that intensity.
1: Wonderful advice, right? I love what she said about arousing your whole body you know feeling it in your whole body that is so important I also asked Dr. Megan her own thoughts on this celebratory month more specifically empowering ways that we can celebrate it either on our own with a partner however we wish
0: the first thing I want to highlight um because I think it's so interesting, is that in our culture, we often think that monogamy equals monotony. But isn't it interesting that you're probably never getting sick of your own hand? Uh, A powerful tool for many of us to reach orgasm. Um, So I think when it comes to masturbation, it's an opportunity to recognize that whatever worked for us so long ago typically still does. And we often don't try on new techniques or ways of giving ourselves pleasure. It's also true that for some of your listeners, this might be the first time they're even allowing themselves that opportunity to express their sexuality or to discover what really turns them on and feels good. And then there may be others that actually notice that there's maybe been a change in their arousal response with their partner, perhaps likely due to some of their uh, frequency of masturbation or or style um, and, and the potential role of porn or uh, too much friction or, um, stimulation that a partner can't duplicate. So what I'm really inviting people to do in this month is to recognize it's an awesome time to reflect really what does masturbation mean to you and how does it fit into your erotic life? Does it help you sort of keep your sexual pilot light on? And when do you go to masturbation? Do you seek it for tension relief out of boredom, pleasure seeking to get to sleep And I highlight that because masturbation takes on so many functions and means so many things. And I think it's just an opportunity here this month to think about and invite you to recognize what does it mean to you and what would you like it to mean to you and how would you like to always know your own ability to communicate not only to yourself in your body what gives you pleasure, but then to translate that and share that, those turn-ons with your partner. So... This month, I'm inviting you to uh, really explore masturbation, self pleasuring, and all that it can bring to you alone and in your relationship.
1: No. If you have been doodling or folding laundry or whatever you're doing, if you're not just sitting down and listening with your every cell, I hope you will consider doing so. You're going to want to because I have sitting with me here today the lovely inside and out India Dupre. India is a gifted actress and musician and writer based here in Los Angeles who I am blessed to call friend. Uh, you may recall the amazing song, Avassit, uh, she kindly let me share with you all recently. She is a woman who radiates warmth and generosity and creativity. She's got this huge heart and is so joyous. And I don't think most people when they meet India would ever think or imagine the difficult path that she had early on in her life. She's written a screenplay about her family's experience called Stripped, which we're going to listen to in a second here. Welcome, India. How are you today?
2: Thank you so much, August. What a lovely introduction.
1: I'm so excited to have you here. You're just one of my favorite people, and your story is so incredible. Tell me a little bit before we get into... I'm going to play the trailer so people can hear um, about the actual screenplay. So you made the trailer... Are you producing the movie now? Is it being pitched? What's happening?
2: Well, um, basically I had started writing a memoir and, um, which I really, really enjoyed. And I had so many memories from my childhood that I was trying to kind of make a timeline for. Um, and it all felt a little overwhelming. So a screenplay with the maximum pages of 120 just seems so much more easier to put all my memories and thoughts and stories into. So that's how it came about. But my screenplay, I have recently finished it. I just submitted it to and a, a screenwriting award show called The Nickels. And um, I'm just starting to meet with producers right now to try to get it produced in Australia um, oh. because it's a historical subject and um, it's set in Australia. It hopefully should uh, qualify to get some Australian funding and uh, tax breaks and things like that. So that's my goal is to make this movie in Australia. Exciting. Oh, yeah. gosh. I, I feel it
1: happening. And I'm going to play this this trailer which you all can find i'll put a link in uh, the post with this show episode you can also find it on youtube but check this out you guys you're gonna love this so powerful
3: i was four
2: when our doctor said we should move to australia to clear up my asthma he referred us to the fairbridge society who offered Mum a job there as a teacher So mum, my brother, my sister and I took off to the other side of the world. But when we got there, to the middle of nowhere, they ripped up our mum's letter of employment, took her away from us and forced her and other screaming mothers onto a bus. And we were left in the blistering heat with hundreds of other kids. Then they put us to work.
3: We come together today to deal with an ugly chapter in our nation's history. And we come together today to offer our nation's apology. Sorry that as children you were taken from your families and placed in institutions where so often you were abused.
2: We were now wards of the state. To have any chance of getting us back, mum needed a house and a job but unemployment was at an all-time high. So desperate, and with no other options, my shy mother became a stripper. This is the story about how she stole us back. About how we hitchhiked over the Nullarbor, the longest road in the world. About our life on the run from the government. And how along the way, she somehow managed to become an Australian icon.
1: Wow. I have chills. I just... I am so impressed with not only the story, but the beautiful artistry in the trailer. It's so incredible. There's so many questions arise when I think about what I do know of your story. Four years
2: old, do you remember life before you were taken? I have a couple of memories of being in England and um, it's snowing and I was on the second floor of our house and really wanting to be outside playing with my brother and sister but I couldn't because I had asthma and just remembering that wanting. I remember our t-shirts. We had Jaws t-shirts which is kind of unusual for kids but I really remember them. (laughs) I remember Jaws. I was into it too. So um, very few memories of England but I have. I can clearly remember my first day in Australia.
1: So you moved to Australia when you were when you were four, or you were you were younger than that. I was four, almost five. Almost five. Okay. Yeah. And to help your asthma, which hopefully did it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what was life like there when you first arrived?
2: Well, um, what had happened is back in England. Um, because of my asthma, a doctor that we were going to had recommended this place called the Fairbridge Society. And we had no idea what it was, but he said, Hey, it's a place in Australia where they'll set you up with a job and a place to live. And, um, you know, they're just trying to fill up the country and it sounded like an amazing opportunity. So my mum went about doing all the, uh, references needed and x-rays and medical checks and everything needed, custody records, um, so that we could eventually fly to Australia. As part of an assisted, um, travel program. So she had to come up with like 200 pounds, which was a lot of money back then. So That's we right. did garage sales and she actually sold her front lawn, grass and, um, you know, everything to come up with the money. And we finally got the money and we went. Um, but part of the deal with going on an assisted Package like that is you couldn't leave the country for two years because they wanted you to come and try it out. Okay. So your passports kind of became invalid when you got there. But we didn't really, we, you know, my mum had stars in her eyes. She was like, oh, Australia, this is going to be wonderful. India will get better. Uh, we'll have this great life by the beach. And so, we, you know, we went, but we knew nobody in Australia. And we were pretty naive, you know. Um, so we traveled to Perth, which is Western Australia. And, um, when we got there, we were taken on a bus, just miles and miles and miles inland, which just felt like the outback. There was nothing around. There was just trees and just dirt road and no shops, nothing. And uh, we got to this camp in the very late at night, and it was just all very, very odd. Um And my mom was a Mormon at the time, so she had, um she wore long dresses, no makeup, um we, we weren't born Mormons, but um, she was converted about four years before we went to Australia. Now, was she uh, married or? Yes. She, okay. she had been, uh, she fell pregnant when she was 16 um, to my brother uh, for her very first time having sex. Um, You're kidding. No, yeah. She, she was, although my grandmother wasn't Mormon, um, you know, they were raised quite strict and, and um, somewhat religious. And my mom didn't know anything about sex. And uh you know her first boyfriend pretended his mom was going to be home that weekend and my mom went to stay there and next thing you know she's pregnant and um my granddad wanted her to have an abortion because she was very young um my mom was determined not to so she married the man uh he was 17 or 18 wow. so they kids. were married yeah they were real kids so it's not surprising it didn't last very long um and uh so she, she set about raising my brother on her own, and she absolutely loved him. And uh, five years later, she wanted, um, she wanted another baby. And she hadn't had a very good um, experience with her father growing up, so she didn't really want men around her children. So um, she met my dad. And, um, basically kind of in the hippie period, just decided I want a little girl and got her, got pregnant. A little that was, free love. Yeah. A little yeah. free love. Um, you know, my dad's fantastic. Um, I know him well now, but I didn't as much growing okay. up. And, uh, so she got pregnant with me and, uh, had her little girl all to herself. And then, um, l- later she met my sister's dad, married him and had my sister. But, um, again, they were all very, very young. And, uh, it didn't last very long because, you know, she already had two kids and it was sure. very hard being kids. What a so. brave
1: and strong woman, though, to, you know, raise three children on her own, to take you to hear this opp- wonderful opportunity, seemingly, you know, and to travel
2: so far. Wow. So you get to this place that is so different. Yeah, we get to this place and it's in the middle of nowhere. And, um, and uh, you know we go to sleep and the the next day we wake up and they um, are putting all the mothers on a, on a bus, the same bus that we came out on with their luggage. And, um, they had preyed on single mothers so and they preyed on single mothers that were pretty poor and didn't have a lot of resources so um you know all these mothers were being put on the bus and didn't quite know why didn't know what was going on and my mom was like no i have a letter that says i'm working here so she took that letter to the principals uh the principal of the place's office and um he said sorry you're not our type he ripped it up and they pushed her on this bus and the next thing you know we were running after the bus and all the mothers are screaming and they're Taken away. Um, so this
1: was the plan. Like, this is the the motive they had. The plan they had in the backs of their minds. That so the deal they presented you was not what it was. It was
2: not on the paper what it was presented. And and the thing with Fairbridge, um, the Fairbridge organization was one of a few places set up in Australia. Um, that had been going on for decades. And what they had started doing, um, in about 1912 is just going to the children's homes in England that were overcrowded. And, uh, it started off with good intentions. It's like, hey, let's take these kids out of these children's homes, um, take them to Australia, teach them how to farm. And then when they're 16, give them a piece of land in Australia because we have so much land. You know, uh, it wasn't originally their land, of course, but, you know, that's how they felt. So they started just sending these kids over on ships. And uh, there was a man called Kingsley Fairbridge who was a noble man and had good intentions. But he died a few years after he set this place up. But um, the British government used his good name to continue sending kids out there. And kids just kept getting sent out there. The problem was is that these kids were put in these children's homes because they were, the mothers were having a tough time during the war or, you know, just having a tough time surviving and put their children here temporarily. And when they went back to get them, they were told the kids had been adopted to wealthy families and had no idea that their children were in Australia on work camps, in work camps. And, oh my God. They often changed the names of the children and their birth dates, so they were never found. And I I think 60 Minutes did a piece about this about 10 years ago, where they tried to reunite some of those children with their uh, family back in England. And very heartbreaking, one man, uh, you know, who was maybe in his 60s, who was in Australia, they found his mother, but by the time um, they found her, she was dead. So he never got to meet his mom, but... At least he knew where his roots were from because a lot of these children had memories of England, but they basically were raised thinking that they were unwanted and just sent over to the other side of Australia, not knowing that their parents were desperately trying to find them and uh, had to kind of relinquish those dreams and think they were just living a good life with a wealthy family. Wow. So it had been going on for decades, but in 1968, there was a child, there was a child welfare law in england that prohibited them sending the children like this so they started preying on single parent families and they said hey you know come over together and um you know um you guys can both come out together and and the general plan of course we didn't know this then i only found this out you know in the last few years was that they were trying to build a white australia they were trying to um colonized the country. So they'd killed off a lot of the oh aboriginals and they were afraid of an Asian invasion because of the Asian countries around Australia. So they were trying to build up good white stock is how they referred to it. Mm. So the more white kids they could get there, the better because they would procreate. And then Australia would become this um, very white, strong country, um, yeah. So the British and Australian governments were actually working together on a lot of these schemes. And over the decades, hundreds of thousands of of children were sent out there. And we were actually one of the last families. We went out in um, 77, and the place closed in 1981. So we're some of the youngest people as part of this scheme.
1: That is so heartbreaking in so many different ways. And you just imagine, who could... Do this, you know it. There must, there must have been some brainwashing that they had these
2: beliefs, you know. So, were you separated immediately then? Yes. Yeah, so basically, the next day they took they took our mom um, and uh, she was taken to a place called a migrant hostel, which is where they took took the women, and they basically said, "You have a little bit of time here to to live for free, but then you have to go find your own home and a, a job." And when we deemed that that is fit enough, we'll return your children. So they were, you know although they'd um, and they had like a, a fake contract that my mum had signed relinquishing her rights to us mm. that um, I've seen the contract because that's that's the crazy thing. Um, I, I started to think that I must have imagined all of this happened because they told us our mom was dead. There was so so many things. They told you your mom was dead? Yeah, they told so us So mom was dead. So
1: you're almost five years old. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the day that you were taken, like separated? Yeah, I remember that what day. What do you think? I mean, you were, it was hard to, I'm sure as a small child, you don't mm-hmm. really wrap your head around it. I, but.
2: I just remember, um, you know, our mom was very loving and very creative. And she just, her whole life was her kids. And. I just remember my sister and I sitting at this wooden table and they were um eating having us eat these dry pieces of mutton and we'd never eaten red meat before and it it was just that kind of thing it just filled up our whole mouths and it was this dry meat and we were like we've never eaten this before and they're like well you're going to sit here all night until you finish it and and then and then I looked I remember looking to my right and there were rows and rows of beds with with kids faces in them and I I just I was just shocked and then um it, it it was just one of those times where you, you had to just become really singular and and um introverted because there was no help. There was nobody mm. to talk to or find out why this was happening or why our mum had left, or we just we had no idea we'd gone from this very bustling city in England mm. to to a place. That was in the it's middle like of It's another planet to yeah. a little kid, you mm-hmm. know.
1: So what did you do while you were there? I know I read, uh, because there's different terms people have used on, online. Forgotten Australians is one, I guess. The Lost Innocence. I read. And I heard that some children were put into homes where they were mistreated. I mean, that is mistreatment to force you to, you know, eat certain foods, whatever. I mean, there's so many, so much that's, that's uh, abusive about that situation. Were
2: you working was that did yeah. you, what what was the work well my brother was nine when we went out there so he had the brunt of it but um he would work 16 hour days he didn't he wasn't given a shower for two weeks he was um chopping wood lifting bricks um at nine yeah at nine years old building cottages um farming um You know, doing agricultural duties, um, cooking, cleaning. He was being a man. He was being a man at nine years old, and um, my sister and I. My sister clearly remembers scrubbing floors. And she's younger than you. She's younger than me, and she she still remembers that too. So she must have been what, like one or two? No, she was three. Okay. There's only eighteen months between us, so she was three, and she clearly remembers that. And we we had to do gardening. It was just a lot of menial labor, and just. And, a, and a, a lot of um, abuse if you didn't do what you were supposed to do. Oh, so, so awful. So
1: you're separated. You are work, The three of you are working. Mm-hmm. And your mom is thinking she's
2: going to be able to get you back if she can get on her feet financially. Mm-hmm. So tell us what was happening with her. Well, she had gone to the migrant hostel. And um, unfortunately, she was raped there on the first day by somebody who'd actually raped a lot of women there. Um so she didn't want to go back there. She was taken to hospital. Um, and when she got out of hospital, she stayed in, like, women's shelters. And, uh, you know, she went to the unemployment office, desperate to get a job. And she had a lot of skills. Uh, before she'd had my brother, she had, um, she had worked for Oxford University Press, illustrating books, um, even at a young age. And uh, she had worked designing costumes and being a pin girl. At Saint Martin's School of Design in London, so she she had skills, and uh, she also worked at um, a children's play group back in England. Um, so she, you know, she went into the unemployment office again, in her, her kind of long dress and very Mormon-looking, and uh, you know, gave her a list of qualifications and said, "I, I you know, I, I'll be anything you want—a nurse, um, you know, work with kids, air steward, whatever—I could get." and um, they, uh, they said, oh, there's a, you know, there's a, a queue a mile long for even the dullest of jobs. Unemployment was very, very high. And of course, Australians would receive preference. So she just tried to get a job. Um, and she saw a marquee on a club that said stripping competition. And I can't remember what the cash prize was, but it was a considerable amount, maybe $500 or something. And, um, she'd never seen stripping. She didn't know what it was. She went in and applied. They said she wasn't the type again. Um, but she took the clothes that she had and she, she just, she was very good at making costumes. So she just cut them up and, um, she, uh, went in the stripping competition and because she didn't know what it was, she was doing like ballerina turns. She she'd studied ballet and she was, um, you know, she was dressed like a native American doing this YMCA song. And, um, and it was so unusual, she won. And um, as a result, she was offered a job at this um, club. And it was very... Stripping was very different back then, especially for my mum not knowing what stripping was. I mean, it wasn't the kind of thing where they put dollar bills on your body or anybody could touch you. It was more like flash dance where you were on stage and you did a show. Okay. And so as you know, my, because my mom was offered a job there, she started coming up with all these different um costumes and scenarios. And she was Wonder Woman. She was a nurse. She was, you know, she she would do Girls on Film, Duran Duran. She, and it's funny, when I hear songs from that period, I, I remember them from my mom's strip shows. Oh, my gosh. Um, but yeah, so she she just created a whole unique stripping world. And she had a very good body. She had Full breast from having three kids, and she, um, she was very slim, and and she she kind of looked a little bit like Brigitte Bardot, and she, um, so she had this. And you job. look a lot like her as well. Uh, <laughs> you do. I I,
1: you may not see. It's hard to see. I think <laughs> yeah. our our ourselves compared to compared our families, but you're stunning, and she's I've, in the pictures. It's it's really remarkable. It's what a resourceful much, woman, too. I mean, yeah. to be. And again, so brave to be somebody who has Mormon values and to jump into something that is so beyond her comfort zone. Mm -hmm. That is incredible. So you obviously learned about, or it sounds like you saw even some of her strip shows. So how did you
2: actually get reunited? How long were you apart? Well, we were apart for two years. Oh, my gosh. Two years, yeah. My mom had tried everything to get us back, um, but... Again, it was run by the British and Australian government, so and your passport was invalid and no and contact like no
1: she could she you? wrote
2: a lot of she wrote a lot of letters um, but I don't remember being in contact with her, so um I don't know how long we we believe she was dead. My brother actually ran away from the place fairbridge uh, it took him days to get out and um he hitchhiked and he he um I think he got to. A place where one of my mom's strip shows were because he saw it in the paper, and um, but I, he didn't get to see her. So I he's like he's ten
1: or eleven, and he yeah, did that.
2: Uh-huh. Wow, yeah. talk about
1: uh, almost forcing kids to grow up so mm-hmm. fast. And but obviously, you, you're all really bright kids and determined. You have your mother's determination. It sounds like so. He found out she was a stripper.
2: Yeah. At what point did they tell you that she was deceased? Um, pretty early on, and I guess the reason they did that was to get control of the kids and to get you, you know, following orders, because at first we were very like, well, our mom's going to get us back, you know, she won't, she she'll tell you off the way you're treating us, and, and, you know, all the kids have been told the same story. So, um, the way she finally got us back was, um, you know, she got this little house, this little bungalow kind of house and she eventually got permission for us to um, come back on a 24 hour visit and during that 24 hour visit she fled so we we were wards of the state, and we'd been in a few other homes besides Fairbridge. There was another place called Bridgewater. Okay. So she fled and, with you, like yeah, she yeah, came she and took she took you. Yeah. So we were in the house, and then we um we went to this truck stop where the trucks would take off across the Nullarbor. And if you think of Australia like the size of America, it would be going from like California to Florida. Um, wow. Yeah. So that's what we did. We we got in a truck and we traveled to the other side of Australia with my mom hitchhiking and we had all our belongings in um, black <sighs> trash bags and, um, but unfortunately we got stuck in the middle of the desert <laughs> on the Nullabore And This really is a movie. <laughs> I mean, everything you're saying, the the scene of her
1: doing her first strip show, it just seems so moving and incredible and, and brave. And then the heartbreak of, I cannot wrap my head around what that must have been like to hear that she was gone, you know, and then to see her again. Do you remember when she came back?
2: Um, Not really. I do remember being on the Nullarbor very, very clearly. I remember the trash bags that we had, and I remember we were wearing sheepskin, and when a truck came by, my mom wrote help in red lipstick and held the sheepskin up to the truck to try to get it to stop but it didn't it just kept going and um I remember we were trying to hide behind the trash bags to try to help Mum get a lift um because you know maybe she would have got a lift better without having three kids next to her um but I you know there were dingoes starting to howl and it it was getting Quite sketchy, and then I'll never forget seeing a truck that stopped at a water stop, and I was just rushing to the truck, help, 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 and he he gave us a lift, and um and we survived, we survived, and we got to the other side of Australia, and um and then my mom um you know we didn't have anywhere to live, we didn't have any money, um somehow we got a tent, and we lived in in tents, and we just had to keep moving because, um the Fairbridge Society had sent out letters to all the states saying, if you see this family, please let us know. And the reason I know that is because um, a few years ago when I was writing the memoir, I um, started to ask places in Australia if they had any records of us. And Fairbridge denied we'd ever even been there. They said, we have no record of you at all. Try the Freedom of Information office. So when I contacted Freedom of Information a few months later, I got 300 documents in the mail, including all these letters where they were searching for us around Australia and psychological reports on me and oh my, my brother gosh. and like, like we were experiments, I don't know. Um, and, wow. and bizarrely enough, um, loads and loads of pictures of my mom in the paper, uh, that were all in this file, which was kind of cool for me because, you know, with putting together this timeline and memory, I suddenly had all this all these images of Mum from the paper i would never have had because we lost everything we had um and so anyway when i got all these documents um it started to put a timeline together and five years later i contacted fairbridge and i said listen my brother has never been able to leave australia because we can't even prove we came into australia um could you please try to find our file? And there was one lady that goes, I remember your family very well. And <laughs> Whoa. So she suddenly, um, a week or two later, I got a file in the mail with, again, loads of photocopies of mom in sexy attire um, from the papers as if to say she was an unfit mom. How people were – so people were – searching for her and any clue of her so mm-hmm. as you were
1: traveling and escaping and hiding yeah she would work in strip clubs or yeah. so she'd appear in a paper and you'd be gone mm-hmm. oh, what a what a epic
2: <laughs> adventure and and scary and difficult too yeah and it was interesting because the lady that sent the file with the file she said i think you'll find this Interesting. As if I didn't know my mom was a stripper. Oh. <laughs> <And> <laughs> like was, she didn't tell you what's right, going on. Right. Yeah, like his, his, a you know, stack of information. Because what on mother your would tell her daughter that yeah. she was
1: being, you know, exactly. a, a, an erotic dancer. That's, yeah. wow, how interesting. So
2: how did you finally get to a place where you were stable again? and... Well, we never really were stable because we'd come back to our tent and somehow there'd be a letter from social services on the tent saying we have to report. So we just moved constantly. So we'd be at one campsite for maybe a month. Then we'd move to another campsite all along this place called the Gold Coast in Australia, which is this beautiful area in Australia with with lots of different campsites and beaches all the way up along the coast. So we just kept moving. And everywhere we moved, um, you know, we'd go to a new school. And, um, we just kind of stay under the radar until, you know, they try to take us away again. And then we'd move. Um, and we, then we started moving back and forth between, uh, the Gold Coast and Sydney. And and when we were in Sydney, we'd live in this, um, fantastic rundown hotel called the Biltmore, which, um, was just like a room with a bathroom at the end of the hall. And that, that was kind of cool because we actually lived in a place and not a tent. Um, even though it was a communal bathroom and stuff, um, and it was right by the beach and we went to a school and you know we it was it was just constant moving when I tell people I probably moved about I don't know 90 or a 100 times as a kid it sounds like an exaggeration but I I've got a list of addresses and and places from all these documents that show where we where we lived and it, it was so it was very unstable but we were very stable in that we were always loved we were very very loved our mom um, really, really did love us, but uh, there was no stability at all. Was it scared? Did you have this sense of we're
1: always on the run? Were you st- as a family scared or do you ever get used to that?
2: Um, we never got used to it, but um, something that we did learn was optimism because you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, what's the word, wallow in the situation you were in because when we had no food, um, you couldn't think, we're just gonna starve. you had to keep thinking, well, maybe tomorrow we'll get some money, or maybe tomorrow Mom will get a job, or you know it was always this um wishful thinking, and I still have to use that very much today in my life like if i if I focus on the negative too much i and I start crying, it's very hard for me to get back to normal like if I go down, I kind of go right down a rabbit hole, so um my husband knows this about me that I just have to stay very positive and very optimistic about things.
1: No wonder. I mean, that makes sense in the context of, you know, how, when people meet you, I think that's how they would describe you as, you know, very happy and optimistic. And that's a huge strength. You know, it, I guess it's some of the lemonade from, from those, those difficult lemons, if, if you will. So
2: was that through your whole entire childhood? Yeah. When, when I was, um, 13, I remember, um, we got a council flat. In a place called Redfern, and um, it was a, a very Aboriginal area in Australia, and it was a lovely area. It was it was a lovely place, and we had a council flat, so we could we could afford it. And by then, Fairbridge was closed, so um, we were able to kind of have a really cool life. Um, but it was a long way. We we wanted to stay at our same school, so um, it would take us an hour to get to school every day. And at one point, we were living in a place called Manly, which was across the harbor. So in order to stay at the same school, we took a ferry, a train, and a bus to get to school every day um in Willamalu. But this is what we tried to do to just stay at the same school. Wow. Um, but, yeah, so so we had stability when we got to Red Furner, And we lived there for two years, which was like a record. Wow. <laughs> it was amazing. Wow.
1: So did you then... I, I don't know what the schooling system was like there, but did you all like graduate high school and all of that throughout this whole? I mean, that in itself is kind of miraculous mm-hmm. because the fact that you were able to have schooling. I mean, that, and that's credit to your mother, too, is that she made sure you had education, you yeah. know, which had to be a risk because they were looking for you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, when I was 17, I moved to America um, and I moved in with my aunt and uh, I finished my last year of high school here, and then I went to UCLA. Um, but I think I was the first person in our family to graduate high school and also to um, go to college and graduate. My sister ended up doing really, really well. Um, she graduated school, went to college, and became a very successful businesswoman. Um, And my brother started doing construction, which is interesting because that's what he was doing at Fairbridge. His whole life. Yeah. So he's been doing construction his whole life. And um, he's very, very good at it. And in fact, if you go to Australia and look around, there's many, many, many buildings that he he did the bricklaying on. (laughs) Incredible. Incredible.
1: And did you have that as a dream and a goal to come to America and go to college? And you did. Where did that come from?
2: Well, um... You know, part of part of the makeup of my mom, um, and being optimistic was she was also a little bit in fantasy land too. It's like, Oh, one day go to America. And it was, Mm. you know, like this dreamland. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's like Hollywood for, you know, mine is not as extreme,
1: but growing up in the Midwest, for example, you know, when I first saw the Hollywood sign, I like burst into tears. Oh my gosh. Yes. You know, so there's this, and I had never been to California, but I knew when I was like three or four, that's where I wanted to live. And I think it's interesting that, so that, that dream that you had Mm -hmm. uh, to come here and did it turn out to be similar to what you were looking
2: for? Did you come here with a goal? Um, Yes, I guess. Um, it, it, it just, I always wanted to go back to Australia when, um, and I don't feel this way now, but at the time, because of the experience I'd had in Australia, I wanted to go back to Australia when I'd made something of myself. You know what I mean? And like, I'll show you Australia. You no. Know? Um, yeah. But I don't feel that way now. In fact, I have such wonderful memories of my childhood growing up at the beach and, and the, Beautiful country of Australia and the beautiful people there, mm-hmm. um, especially the generation of today—they're um, very well traveled, very educated, really, really wonderful people. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I wanted—I wanted to make something of myself, which you so oh. completely have. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you're so talented.
1: You do so many different things. I know you teach. You, uh, your acting career. You do voiceovers. Your music. You have an album on iTunes. You're, you're so many you know multi-talented and and create such wonderful art exactly. did you study music
2: and theater i studied yeah. um, theater at ucla and um, it was wonderful and we'd grown up singing with my mom mm-hmm. that was um one thing you know, we started off singing Mormon songs from the church, and then <laughs> they turned into wow. like the Eagles songs and and whatever songs. And, and we always sang a cappella and sang very high. And my grandmother was an opera singer, so we um I still sing opera just from you know once. I my- remember from the the gig
1: I saw oh, you yeah. perform, and you went into opera. I mean. <laughs>
2: Whoa, you're so talented.
1: Seriously, I was so blown away. That's incredible to me that you have that in you as well. That's incredible. So they
2: instilled music into you. Yeah. Wow. When when my grandmother could find where we were living, she would send us cassette tapes, and she would sing on them, and we would listen to those tapes over and over because we didn't have TV or, um, you know, stereos or anything. So it was just a battery-operated cassette player, and we would just listen to my grandma all the time. So, we, you know, we had, like, a Joni Mitchell tape, My mom and Kate Bush, and that was it. Oh, (laughs) that is amazing. So, so you knew that your mom was a stripper. Mm -hmm. What did she tell you about it? Um, gosh, I don't really remember. You know, well, I wrote the scene in my screenplay to try to make sense of it because the funny thing was, is as any kid is, no matter what the parents are doing, the kids always want the parents to be normal. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. So, yeah, my sister and I would often like try to disguise my mom's sexiness we try Mm -hmm. to dress her up or hide her little denim shorts um or you know we we because you stood out so much for it and you already were living a very unusual life yeah Yeah. and there were there were times that we were really proud of it because she was like miss gold coast and she was a meter maid which were these women that walked around in gold bikinis and gold high heels with a sash in the front and they would put uh, money in the parking meters so that people wouldn't get tickets so they'd keep shopping it was a job for the tourist board and so my my mum was a meter maid and Mm -hmm. i remember there was like um kind of a a fancy dress up competition at our school once and my mum crocheted us these gold bikinis and and made us sashes and we went to school as meter maids and we thought it was so cool and everyone looked at us like we were the weirdest people ever. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that wow. is amazing. It sounds like you were close-knit as siblings too,
1: which makes sense. Yeah. You went through so much together. Yeah. Did she, because she had this interesting transition from you know, being Mormon and very, very conservative and then having a very non-conservative job where she's Mm -hmm. the opposite, almost exposed in so many ways. Do you feel like she embraced that or did she, did she have any shame
2: around that job or was it something that she took pride in? You know, I think because, um, you know, not to get too deep, but I think she had, uh, abuse in her childhood, um, that It made her feel very empowered Mm -hmm. to have um, control of her body and control of her sexuality and control of her image. So, um, you know, this one scene I wrote in the screenplay, it was like she wore her sexuality like a superhero costume. And, and my, my brother says something in the screenplay, like, yeah, but even Superman goes back to Clark Kent sometimes. And, and she's like, yeah, well, I can't go back. This is, she's like, people listen to who I am, mm-hmm. who, to what I have to say like this before they didn't. And it was true. I mean, my mum was very powerful. You know, she, uh, everybody, you know, from that time period in Australia, will we'll know my mom because there was not many women like her walking around on or riding a bike she couldn 't drive, so she was always very public and I remember once um very recently there was a, a Facebook page called like I remember the Gold Coast or something, and somebody wrote like whatever happened to Margaret Duprey and they put a, a picture of her and there was just hundreds of posts of people saying. I remember her when I was a kid seeing her or or like, oh, I remember being in an elevator with her once. So I'll never forget the images of Margaret Dupre going by with her children on the bikes. She
1: almost sounds to me like a Marilyn Monroe or something. I mean, totally different, but something about the this, like you said, the the superhero, it's like she because I know that Marilyn Monroe was a very sensitive person Mm -hmm. and kind of took on this persona. Yeah. You know, and so many of the adult stars that I interview here are so empowered by the work Mm -hmm. and a lot of them have been through you know not all of them but many of them have been through difficult experiences or just grew up feeling a lot of shame around Mm -hmm. their bodies and to be able to express themselves and to Mm -hmm. have people listen and watch and really respect what they do is is incredible what did your mom teach you about your
2: body um well you know growing up in Australia at that time everyone was topless on the beach and so my mom was pretty much topless a lot of the time and she was she would wear this little crocheted G-string. So we grew up feeling very comfortable um with my mom's body. Um and then I guess as a result our bodies um and you know when I look back at pictures I think oh my god my mom looked amazing but of course at the time it was still like oh let's get let's try and cover mom up. Yeah. <laughs> but um but <laughs> what did she teach us? She um she just, you know, it, it just felt very natural to, to be running around on the beach without much on. And when I look back at pictures of myself at like 14, 15, um, I'm surprised I had the confidence I was wearing like little crop tops and, and shorts. And I didn't look sexual because I was really skinny. Um, but I, I was like, wow, I was, God, I had some confidence back then walking around, you know, that's like a rare that.
1: thing too. I think. Partly, there's so many factors, but one of the factors that's very influential is how our our parents, what's modeled to us. Mm -hmm. So to have someone so free, you know, because it's not natural for us to have shame about our bodies. That's a cultural thing that affects, you know, parents and everybody else and and all that. What did she teach you about sexuality or did she teach you?
2: Well, that was the bizarre thing because um, she'd been raised so religiously, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, my mum still thinks I'm a virgin. I don't think I've ever discussed <laughs> sex with her ever. That's really funny. And I don't want to. Um, but, uh, so, you know, but she was raised me like, don't ever drink, don't ever smoke. Uh, she was very protective of us in terms of she wouldn't let men talk to me or come around me. And still to this day, I've never been drunk. Um, you know, so she, she really had a lot of values she put in us while at the same time his mum's postcards at every tourist shop topless, you know. Um and, and funnily enough her postcards were like the top selling postcards for over twenty years. Um and still if you go to Australia you see my mum's postcards there. And <laughs> that she, is incredible. she's topless. She's
3: topless that is incredible.
2: Them. And yeah. what a great example too, I think, of the fact that
1: you can have very high moral standards and be a very sexual, comfortable with yourself person—you know—that's mm-hmm. just a, a dichotomy that we don't often embrace in our yeah. culture, which is
2: unfortunate. Yeah, sure. and people would um, would often make up stories about our mom and um, crazy stories, and then you know they'd pass the postcards around school, and there was those really horrible things that would happen too. Um, but. But it it was like if people just knew my mom and knew how loving she was and creative and and wonderful and that this was just her job. Um, But they they couldn't separate the two. And we always used to hear that our mom was a prostitute. And it's like, no, she's not a prostitute. She's a stripper. There's a difference.
1: Sure. And really a performer. I mean, Mm -hmm. it sounds like like a burlesque dancer pretty Mm -hmm. much by kind of what today's standards are and stuff like that. What is your relationship like today with your mom?
2: Well um mum um became a painter and a psychic and she's remarkably gifted as a psychic. My grandmother was actually psychic too and um but she wasn't allowed to do it because of the church. Um and uh my mum just kind of realized she she had this gift and I kind of have it too. Um, I was going to say you're really intuitive. You say things and I get goosebumps. Uh, it's yeah. Um, so anyway, so my mum was a psychic in Waikiki. Uh, she lives in Hawaii um, for quite some time until they um, banned the street performers. So uh, she's also a painter and she paints mermaids and again fantasy world. She loves the whole mermaid underwater world and she's really really talented. And I almost see her like a mermaid for some reason. She is. She's. She actually got a tattoo on her hip that is like green scales. So she oh really? really <laughs> she's actually <laughs> very much. A, mermaid. a
1: magical
2: mother and and mom and human, you know, Mm -hmm. do you talk very often or? Oh yeah. We, we talk every day and, um, I'm very much the mother and she's very much the child. Interesting. (laughs) Well, you grew up so quickly Mm -hmm. and on
1: your own for much of it. Well, for a critical time. And then all of you had to be somewhat adults and,
2: uh, wow. Leander says I, I'm my husband, sorry, that's Leander. He says I'm, um, the most in control person he knows. And it's, it's, definitely reflective of the childhood because we were so out of control as an adult i've lived in the same place for 15 years now and i i, I like to get my mail coming at the same address i like to get christmas cards i like i like somewhat control <laughs> i love your christmas cards by the way <laughs> oh, they're some of the only ones that i save like they're all frameable <laughs> oh thank gorgeous
1: you. and your relationship with leander is so beautiful you're He's such a, a neat wonderful husband yeah, yeah. how did
2: you guys meet uh, we met um on the set of a Microsoft commercial. They wanted accents from around the world and I was the Australian person and he was um the assistant director at the time and, and uh we met uh ten years ago and um wow. which is also really great too because my mum she never really showed any strong relationships with men growing up and um she actually really looks at the relationship with me and my husband as as a very ideal thing, you know, um, because you know, I remember she used to say things to me like, oh, don't ever do this with a man. They'll never respect you. Or, um, And I think Leander just defied all the all the beliefs she had about men. And um, it's so wonderful. And she's That's beautiful. In yeah. a
1: way, he's then a father figure and you're the mother figure to her. Mm-hmm. Just so interesting. How can we support your work? And I, I just feel like you know, I think so many people listening right now are going to want to support you and this, this, I mean, this film, it is just, I, I don't know how it could not happen. It just seems like such an important piece and a beautiful one. Um, so it, it would be you. the best thing to follow your work. You know, should we all be watching the, the YouTube video? Anybody out there knows a producer?
2: Introduce yeah. her. please. Introduce it. <laughs> that would be great. Um, well, I just set up an Instagram account that's called India Duprey Official, and I'm going to start posting pictures of my mum there from um, from back in the day because she's really pretty gorgeous, and she's she's in a lot of Australian books and magazines and things. And so I'm going to start posting those pictures there. I also have um, a Twitter account, India Duprey, and a, a Facebook page too. Um, but yeah, I think um, it it would be wonderful if anybody. Uh, knows of any good producers interested in the film, please let, please yes, reach out. <laughs> Seriously,
1: you know, whether on social media, if you don't want to do it publicly, I know you also have your website, indiaduprey.com. Yes. If you yeah. need to go through my website, augustmclaughlin.com, whatever you need to do to, to reach us. Yeah. Uh, I just, I just think it's such an important mission. And we're actually going to change things up and, uh, go another route as far as our closing today because India was kind enough to offer to share a song. Could you tell us about this song that, yeah. you, that you're going to share with us?
2: Well, um, a good friend of mine, Georgia, um, you know, she got me inspired about talking about um, my childhood. She's very supportive and um, she inspired me to write this song about being stuck on the Nullarbor. And um, so it's a song called The Nullarbor Dance. Uh, the Nullarbor is that long stretch of road from one side of Australia to the other. And because we were jumping up and down like crazy whenever a truck would pass, it was kind of like the Nullarbor Dance. And so I wrote a song about being stuck on the Nullarbor and dreaming of getting to the other side and my mum writing help in red lipstick on the sheepskin hide and and um I haven't recorded it officially. I just sang it live at Hotel Cafe, and and um, so this is just a, a recording um, with my friend Joy singing backing vocals and Kyle on uh, piano, Wonderful. and Leander on drums. Wonderful! So, what a gift! Go. Well, thank you for sharing it. Thank you, August, and so and I have to it. just say I'm so impressed and proud of you. And if anybody has not seen what August looks like, my gosh, she is the most gorgeous, <laughs> radiant sunshine ever, and the sweetest woman. I and I, um, I'm just so so incredibly proud of her and of everything she contributes to the world because that's what she does. She just is contributing and making people feel really comfortable about who they are and their sexuality and, She's just a wonderful, wonderful person on this planet. Aww, <laughs> thank you so much. You're going to have me
1: tearing up here. That's so beautiful. I so appreciate that. And I appreciate all of you guys listening out there. Uh, so definitely stay tuned to this show and let us know if you have questions for Dr. Megan. Support India's work. I'm going to be sharing some more information and links on augustmclaughlin.com and my blog. And I'm going to leave you today instead of our usual music with our beautiful song by India.